if you're new and shocked that I'm the pastor, so am I. But I'm super blessed by what God has done. Today we got an interesting passage. With all the divisiveness in this world, in our society, in this present day, it seems like the last thing that we need to talk about is division. The text we're going to read today in Luke chapter 12, verse 49 to 53, Jesus predicts or he talks about that very thing, division. But if you're willing to do what we do at this church, dig into the text, not look at just the original words that were written, but look into what the meaning and the purpose is, I promise you, you will see there's not necessarily the division that you think Jesus is preaching, but you're going to see hope and a life far beyond anything that you can imagine. So we're grateful that you're here today. And uh, is it possible to turn the lights on so I could sm see these smiling faces? Yeah, maybe not. All right. Thank you. Hey, there you guys are. Super grateful. I got a call last night at like 7 o'clock. So give it up for Cheryl for filling in the last minute. Pray for the Kays family. They've got some illness going around, as well as everybody that came back from uh, Israel. A bunch of people have uh, COVID, and it's just gone from one of the greatest moments in life to reality, back to the United States and dealing with a lot of sickness. But by the grace of God, I didn't get sick. So as we were in Israel, I don't know if you guys have ever seen some beautiful pictures. Maybe you've seen this. This is a picture right above the Garden of Gethsemane. It's the Temple Dome. That's my own personal picture. You're getting to, we're getting ready to walk into where Jesus walked on Palm Sunday, heading to that Temple Mount. That's actually a Muslim picture. As we are heading into this beautiful place, here's what you need to know. This is a powerful thing, but Israel's not peaceful. It's it's, it's a mess. In Israel, our guide, we had this lady guide, her name was Nili, and she told us that in this, in this country, there are three types of providences in Israel, A, B, and C territories. The first territory, I think you can see a map of how it's spelled out. The first territory is Palestinian controlled. That's the A section. The B section is joint controlled. Most of that is agricultural and there, there's this cooperation. And then the C section, which is 60% of the country, is C controlled. And in that, it's interesting. So let me give you an example. A Palestinian controlled area is called Bethlehem. As you head into Bethlehem, it's got 12-foot prison gates, and it says nobody as an Israeli or a practicing Jew is allowed in. So our Jewish guide stays in the bus. We bring in another guide to help us walk through it. His name was George. But it's just different than our society. It's just not like it is in this, in this uh, country. Here's what I found out. And this is the third time I've been to Israel. There's a lot of bitter, angry, frustrated people over there. And it's like a tinderbox waiting to fire. It's just one little thing happens, and all of a sudden, everybody's angry, everybody's arguing, and nobody really wins. And it's kind of like where we're heading if we don't, church, pull ourselves together. We live in this beautiful country, and as we came back, I'm kissing the ground. 
because, and I'll talk about it another day, about the miracle that me and Liz are here today because of some of the things that happened as we were heading out. We almost stayed back a couple of days because of something. But listen, we are heading into this area. We are the United States of America, but we are really divided. And it's our job as the church to be the leading voice in our community, in our society, to bring freedom, to bring hope, and to bring Jesus Christ into every conversation so that we can start this revolution or this revival of healing this great nation because this nation is great if we can get back to what God wants us. So we are going through Israel having this incredible journey and many of the sites uh, are, are fantastic but here's what I found out. They're all fighting for supremacy over these certain sites. That original picture, that temple dome, that's the Muslim dome over the actual temple that uh, the, the Jewish people created. So there's this fight here. So that's actually a Muslim mosque. And you can't talk, you can't be friendly. And they're all fighting for superiority. And here's what happens. Whoever has dominion over that, the person that shouldn't have it has it. Does that make sense? Let me give you an example. There's this place called the Cynical. Maybe you don't know it by that name, but it's the most fought for territory in all of Israel. All three, Muslims, Christians, and Israelis want dominion or power over this little area. It's called the Cynical. You'll see it in just a second. It's called the Upper Room. That's it. Now, here's the thing about this place. Below this upper room where Jesus broke bread and, and the Holy Spirit came, there's this thing called King David's tomb. The truth is, it's probably not really King David's tomb. It's probably not in that area because the city of David is down the road about a half a mile. So this is not really King David's tomb. So the Israelites really don't have power and dominion over this territory because it's not the right place. But the Christians, within a couple hundred yards, believe this is the real spot. And there's a church just on the other side of this. You can't see it, but there's a temple, just on, uh, a church just on the other side. And in that area is a mosaic of this huge church, this mega church that they believe the temple or the upper room was really at. But here's the thing. In 1524, the Muslims put a mosque over it, and so guess who has control? The Muslims. They're fighting over stuff that doesn't really make sense. And the reason why I bring this up is division is everywhere. It's creeping into our community. It's creeping into our life. It's creeping into your own personal walk with Jesus Christ. And the idea today is to break free of that division and watch God work through this. Today we're going to talk about fear and division or the fear of division, however you want to look at it. And here's the thing. The last few years has really broken my heart because the church and our country and all the struggles, it's just heartbreaking because I know who God is. I know what God has done in my life. I know how he's brought me through some of my own personal division. And in that, we've kind of fallen back and fallen back on what God is trying to do. And so it's really heartbreaking. And here's the heartbreaking thing. If you're under 30 and you're on social media platforms, whatever it is, it's not very popular to be Christians because of the last few years and how Christians have reacted. And I know you guys are all the good folk here, but those other Christians, 
haven't done a great job of letting this next generation see who God is and experience the Jesus that you and I know who is awesome and all-powerful. And uh, it's really kind of negative to be a Christian today for someone under 25 or under 30. It's not a popular thing. And so we need Jesus in a very bad way to take over this next generation. And we, church are going to be the, the, a big part of it because I believe God has revival sparking out in certain areas and I know we have a revival spirit in this place and so that's what we want to see today. So in the text today at the end, we've got two more uh, messages on facing fears. Jesus says in my text today in the subdivision in, in Luke 12, uh, 49, it says, Jesus causes division. Now, here's what I want to do. Is I, who needs God to move in their life right now? Okay, so uh, I'm going to talk to you guys in just a second, but I know you guys that are online, there's about 12 or 15 people that have come back from Israel that have COVID right now that are watching that need God to move. And I know that beyond that, there's a bunch of people watching and there's a bunch of people here that need God to move. And let me just give you the answer before I even preach. If you are divided in your faith or if you are divided in your life in some way, one foot in this side and one foot in this side and you're missing the present, you are not where God wants you to be. You have to get undivided and give your undivided focus, attention, and heart to Jesus Christ. And I promise you revival will start within you because revival doesn't start in, in Ashbury. It's re it starts in your heart. It starts in your soul. It starts inside of who you are. And when that happens, you get the word of God start to move. And all of a sudden, I was going to say Shazam, and it happens. But you can't say that. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read, and then we're going to pray. And here's what I'm going to ask you to do. As I'm praying, I want you to pray that God will speak to you. And God will show you, reveal, Lord, where my division is and where I've got one foot in and one foot out and show me. Because I promise you if you do that, God will bring great freedom in your heart. So here's what it says. Jesus says these, it's red letters if it's, you got your Bible open. I have come to set the world on fire. Wow. And I wish it were already burning right now. So let's pray. You guys pray, I'm going to pray, and we're going to watch God meet us. And if you're online, start praying right now and watch God work. Father in heaven, speak to us. Use this moment in time to reveal your heart. Lord, I pray for a revolution to happen like it did in the Jesus movement. But beyond that, Lord, I pray that you do something right now in this room right now in someone's life that's watching online. I pray for a spiritual, powerful movement so big and so strong that the Spirit of God washes away all failure, washes away all sickness, washes away all addiction, washes away all uh, inappropriateness and struggles with divorce and, you know, all the things that are wrong in this world. We ask that your spirit reveal itself and wash it away in the blood of Jesus Christ. Speak to us now in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen. Yeah, praise God. Jesus wants to bring a fire and if you're here today and you're not on fire, praise God, because we're going to light you on fire today. That's what God wants to do. And it's not going to be physically, because that would be inhumane. 
It's going to be spiritually, and that's what God wants to do. He wants to speak to your heart, so I, I hope you pray. What does it mean that Jesus wants to light the world on fire? That, that's a question that you should be asking. As you read the Bible, you should be going, well, what does that mean, and how does that work, and what would the world on fire look like? Well, I think we have a picture of what the world looks like on fire. That's what it's going to look like, and this is a symbol of what God wants to do in our own personal life. And there's really three ways to translate this verse. And again, I'm going to give you the answer before we explain it. Here's the three things that he's saying. First of all, it's judgment. The fire of God that comes from heaven is judgment. That's number one. The second one is a Holy Spirit movement. And we're going to see it and read about it. And so it's this work of the Holy Spirit. And then the last one is the spreading of the gospel. If you just read it and that God wants to set the world on fire, it looks negative. But when you see all three and what Jesus is really trying to say, you're going to see that it actually has a lot of hope and a lot of understanding of what God really tried to do when Jesus came into this world. So let's talk about judgment. I don't think we understand judgment that well. I think the people outside, non-believers, see judgment as one way. And I think Christians see it one way. And I think a handful of us see it the correct way. And maybe that's not me. But here's what it says. In the Bible, the image of fire, especially in Judaism, the image of fire means division or judgment. It means a purification. There's this moment where there's this hot fire that purifies us from all impurity. Part of the good thing about judgment or conviction is it shows you where you need to change. That's the beauty about judgment. That's the beauty of the Holy Spirit. If you want freedom, it says in the Bible, there's freedom where the Spirit is. The freedom will lead you to a place and say, man, you've got some stuff to work on, and in that, you've got to work through that, and the fire of God burns it off, and now the judgment becomes a blessing because you've worked through that. So Jesus came to purify us by this judgment, but it's not the type of judgment... God is not here to judge you. Man made a decision to be judged because they'd partaken in the fruit. And from that moment, judgment is for all. And Jesus, uh, and then God says, well, let me send you my son. We all know John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? But do you know 17 or do you know what verse 18 says? Here's what verse 18 says. It says this, and it's really important. It says, the one believing in him, in him Jesus, is not judged. But the one not believing in him has already been judged. Because he has not been delivered uh, by the name of the only begotten son. So here's the thing. Uh, a lot of people today go, well, you're God. The God that you believe in, he's judging me. And he's judging the way that I live and my sexuality and what I want to party and how I do these. And it's like, no, 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 no. God's not judging you. Man made a decision so that the judgment came upon man. God's sending a savior into the world to save us from judgment. And we get confused with that, and so our job is to understand that. Yeah, thank you, Jesus. God gives us a solution. It's not God's fault that judgment needs to be brought on this earth. It's human's fault for falling victim to partaking in this sin. And so our job is to receive Jesus as the solution. So the first, time, the first part of this is the fire of God is about judgment. Makes sense. 
The second part is this Holy Spirit fire. When Jesus spoke of the power of the Holy Spirit, that would come only after Jesus did the work on the cross. He died upon the cross, and then he rose three days later. That's the second part. So maybe he's talking about, man, I just want the Holy Spirit to catch everybody on fire and that the tongues from heaven will start to speak and this world be radically changed. That's what happened in Acts chapter 2 at that place called the Cynical or the upper room. That's what we saw. We were up there and we were talking and here's what it says. Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place, the upper room or what we call the cynical. And suddenly a sound of a violent rushing wind came from heaven and it filled the whole house where they were staying. So now they're in this upper room and then it says, and then tongues like flames of fire were divided, appeared to to them and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak in different languages or different tongues as the Spirit gave them the ability to speak. So at one point, the blessing from heaven, Jesus is resurrected, he ascends in heaven, they're all in the upper room praying and, and, and now the, the, the Holy Spirit comes down and brings the fire of these tongues so that they can now have a relationship with God like they've never had. And it's all done after Jesus does the work on the cross. You know why Hebrews chapter 12 verse 29, you know what it says? Our God is a consuming fire. And the Holy Spirit wants to consume you. If you've ever seen a fire burn a house down, burn a car down, burn a building down, burn the twin towers down, it consumes it to a place where there's no structure because it wants to consume every part of it. And it says, our God, the God that you and I believe, the God that you and I serve, the God that you and I worship and sang some songs to, our God is a consuming fire and he wants to bring that fire into your life. Amen. All right, you guys here? All right. I'm just going to take tea and relax like you guys are. Cheers. And now the third one is this, and this one is my favorite one because this is the one that makes my heart go pitter-patter and leap because here's what it says. Maybe it's the fire that Jesus spoke of is spreading the good news. You guys are responsible for spreading the good news. It's just not my job. I get paid to be a pastor, and trust me, I've invited people to church, and I can see a few people that I've invited here but it's not just my job. My job is to be obedient and help you become obedient. Your job is to also spread the good news and share that love of God because there is going to be some division in this world. Maybe it's spreading the good news and the expansion of the coming kingdom and it's coming across the globe and all of that happens after Jesus dies on the cross, rises again, and then... The Holy Spirit comes, and then you guys and me, together, we are empowered by this to let the fire of God go through the Word of God. If, 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 if these were just my words, we would be, you know, a very powerful, I'm a positive person. I always try and find the blessing in everything. But listen, my words in my life led me to jails and prison. And so we'd probably all be in that same spot going, how did we get here, Jeff? And I'm like, I don't know. But God's words lead us to freedom. And it's good news 
because in God, there's hope no matter what's happened in your life. The Holy Spirit has the power to forgive you and move you beyond any failure or any fears or any struggles that you have in your life. And that's where we are today. Jesus comes to set the world on fire for one reason. He wants to draw you in. And church, I don't know if you guys have watched the Jesus Revolution yet. But we are in the same exact spot. Yeah, it was awesome. Go see it. Make sure that they go see it. But listen, don't clap yet. In that movie, there was a bunch of fuddy-duddy Christians that didn't want the hippies in the church. And what happened was the church was blocking them because they didn't want them in. And so what happened is you brought the hippies in and the old fuddy-duddies went to another church. We're in that same place today. There's a bunch of people outside that don't think they should be in here because they don't think they're welcome in here because of a lifestyle or a way that they live. And you all have to be open to them, not to their lifestyle, but open to them so that they can hear the gospel and change. Listen, 20 years ago, I was a different person. But the gospel came in and it radically changed me and you've got to give God a chance. But right now they're not coming in because we are pushing them out. So go watch the movie and listen to what God is. Everybody in this church is welcome. Everybody in the world is welcome in this church. Hope that makes sense. Here's what verse 50 says. I love this part. It says this. I have a terrible baptism of suffering ahead of me. I'm under a heavy burden until it's accomplished. Well, what does that mean? What does that mean? How does that work? What does that mean to us? The fact that Jesus spoke of suffering as a baptism is so meaningful. Do you get that? Listen to the meaning here. He's saying he wasn't just sprinkled with a little bit of suffering. Oh, here, let me give you a little bit of suffering like we are. You guys are sprinkled with suffering. Well, a couple of you have had some pretty severe suffering. I know your life. But for the most part, even myself with a little bit of uh, uh, prison failure stuff, it's sprinkled compared to some. And this, he's saying, no, this is a baptism. And what we believe in this church is full immersion baptism. There's been a couple people that their head doesn't want to go down. And you know what we do when nobody's looking? We push their head all the way in. We're going to make sure everybody's fully immersed in this church. There's no sprinkling going on. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He wants, he was immersed in agony. There was this moment. There's this church where the rock that Jesus fell and prayed for the night that he died. There's this church around this rock. And every time you walk, it gives me goose pimples to think about it. Every time we walk into this place, the, the, the agony and the power and, 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 and the sadness that Christ had. Every time I walk into it, it takes your breath away. And it's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus says this. He says, I, am, I, I have a terrible baptism of suffering ahead of me. What is he saying here? Well, I've got to accomplish this stuff on the cross, but I am going to be fully immersed in agony the same way that we as Christians are fully immersed into the baptism by water and the overflow of baptism by the Spirit. I've got to be fully immersed. If I'm in the water and fully immersed, when I'm in the water getting baptized, I am full immersion. I feel the love of God all around me. When I'm letting the Spirit of God baptize me, I've got the Spirit of God overflowing all over me. 
He's talking about this baptism, and he's telling you and I that we need to be a part of this. And he says this in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Who for the joy set before him endureth or endured the cross, despising shame. Jesus was set before God to endure everything, fully immersed in agony and suffering and trial so that you and I can have freedom in the name of Jesus Christ and have the ability to live by the fire of God and preach that to other people. Verse 51, he says this, and I'm going to read the first sentence and I'm going to go back. Do you think that I have come to bring peace on earth? Now, when I asked that question to myself, you know, you guys a couple weeks ago listened to how I read the Bible. I asked, Jeff, does God, does God want to bring peace? Well, I, I kind of know the Bible. I read it regularly. That means every day. And I don't know if you guys realize this, but Jesus died and then resurrects, in, and then he goes to the upper room. And do you know what he says in the upper room? Peace be with you. Wait a minute. If peace be with me, what did you just say? I didn't come to bring peace. Is there a contradiction? No. The problem is the Bible answers its own question. When we look at the Bible and just look at, uh, you know, there's a big controversy about how people translate Romans chapter 9 or John chapter 6 verse 44. Listen, the Bible answers itself. Just read the next chapter or the chapter before. There's no contradiction here. Let me explain. Jesus says, I have come. Uh, do you think I've come to bring peace on this earth? You're going to see in the following section. He says, no. But here's what it is. When Jesus raised from the dead, he said, peace be with you. But here's the answer. In my personal walk with Jesus Christ, when I make Jesus Christ my Savior, in my salvation, I have peace that comes from heaven. I accept Jesus I claim him as Lord and Savior, and in that, I have the peace that comes from heaven. And it makes no sense. I didn't really do anything. I just receive this heavenly overflow that makes my life peaceful. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean that my life from that day forward, I'm never going to have an overdraft? My kids are going to be perfect, all straight A's, right? I'm never going to get a flat tire. I'm never going to have a bad hair day. No, that's not what it means. It means that I receive the peace from heaven so that I can walk through whatever I'm supposed to walk through because this world is full of chaos and division and there's things fighting and battling for your soul. And my life, when I accepted Jesus Christ, didn't become peaceful. My heart did. Does that make sense? My heart becomes peaceful. My family isn't always happy. I got all girls. Come on. There's no way we can all be happy at the same time. My family's not always happy, they're not always peaceful, and they're definitely not perfect. They're not supposed to be. What they're supposed to do is live like Christ would live in this non-peaceful world, and we get to experience the peace that God has for us. Here's what it says, John chapter 14, verse 27. You guys have heard this verse before. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you, I do not give as the world gives. The world gives you something else. The world gives you division. The world gives you politics. The world gives you all kinds of things apart from But it says, the peace I leave with you, the peace I give you, I do not give to you as the world gives. Don't let your heart be troubled and do not 
be afraid or do not live in fear about the division that's going to happen. These next few verses, you're going to see some great division. And so here's what we see here. The world that I live in is imperfect. Can I get an amen? amen. The world that I live in is flawed. And each and every human being, believer or non-believer, is flawed because we are imperfect because we have sin. And the only thing that can help me with my sin is the love of Jesus Christ because he died and shed his blood and that blood washes my sin clean so that I can then have a relationship with God and then his resurrection helps me so that I can also be catapulted when I die or leave this earth into this heavenly realm. So if the world is imperfect, the peace that I have is the peace of God because I have a relationship. What does a relationship with God mean? It means that I trust in him. Think about your best friend, and it may be your boyfriend, a girlfriend, your husband, your wife, maybe your best friend, whoever it is. That relationship is the type of relationship you should have with your Savior. I love you, Lord. I'm angry at you, Lord. Where are you, Lord? Thank you, Jesus, for getting me back from Turkey when I didn't think I was going to make it. I thank you, Jesus, because I have a relationship with him, and it's a working thing. Church is not a tradition. Other people make it a tradition. Church is to come and worship God because you have a relationship. And in that relationship, my Jesus rolls with me. That means walk with me if you're not. My Jesus walks with me good and bad. Amen. In my good days, he's with me. And in my bad days, he's holding me and he's the footprints in the sand. Amen. That's who Jesus is. And that's where I get this, what we call in Israel, they say shalom. But they say shalom, shalom is that perfect peace. The greater my relationship, the more perfect that peace that I have, even in the darkest days on this earth. Shalom, shalom. Again, let's read. Do you think I have come to bring peace on this earth? No, I have come to divide people against each other. Whoa, here's what he says. And from now on, families will be split apart. Three in favor of me, two against, two in favor, three against. This is who we follow. This is the Jesus Christ. And wait, the next verse, it's going to be even more shocking if you don't know the text. But here's what it's saying. To follow Jesus, it has a cost. Do you guys realize that? Go to Disneyland. Man, the cost of Disneyland is crazy right now. I used to live there, and I think we used to pay as residents like 20 bucks to go. Now it's like $9 million. <laughs> There's a cost, and that cost in following Jesus might have some difficulty in your family. Do you realize that? That there might be some difficulties in your family. Now, during the days of Jesus, do you realize the difficulties that, it, that, that a believer had during the days of Jesus? If you believed in Jesus, you were losing your, your, your family rights, your inheritance. That's the first thing. You were probably losing your job, and you were losing brothers and sisters and going, being able to go home for Christmas. Because they're like, you're not following Jewish tradition. You're shunned. You're basically like a Samaritan or a Gentile now. And now you can't be a part of our life. It doesn't really happen in America today. It does a little bit. Some people are like, oh, my parents or my mom or my kids are really upset that I'm following Jesus. But really, the persecution we have here is really, oh, you evil Christian, quit posting bad person. Oh, no, somebody persecuted me. 
Following Jesus has a cost, and it might be a cost within your own family. Two chapters later in, in Luke chapter 14, it talks about Jesus stressing the cost of discipleship. Here's what it says. This is really cool. If anyone comes to me and does not hate, listen, strong word, hate the father and mother, wife, children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be a disciple. Wow. Well, I don't want to hate my wife. That doesn't make my marriage very good. But that's what it says. Let's get to it in just a second. Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple because my disciple carries me above everything else. That's what Jesus is saying. Let me explain this. Jesus isn't teaching emotional hatred. You don't have to go home and tell your spouse, I hate you because I love Jesus more. That's not what he's saying. Maybe that works. I have no idea. Don't try it. But if it works, let me know if you do try it. He is making very clear that your relationships with anything other than him should be secondary. And there's, this, there's a bunch of really cool quotes in the movie, Jesus Revolution. There's a bunch of cool quotes. If you haven't seen it, I don't want to wreck it for you. But there's one just about this right now. And, and here's what he's saying. Jesus wants your relationships to be secondary. This means your spouse, secondary. Your children, secondary. How do we do that? Our children's catapult above everything else. It's my child, uh, you know, my spouse, my job, and then Jesus is somewhere down here for most of us. Let's be honest. That's just how it is. And Jesus is trying to rearrange the church. And here's what he's saying here. Your spouse, your children, your parents, your brothers and sisters, these, none of these can be first in your life. Every loyalty, every love, even my own life must be less than for Jesus Christ to be more than. Whoever does not carry their cross, whoever does not die to their loyalties really can't be a disciple of Jesus because you've got one foot in the world, you've got one foot in your marriage, you've got one foot with your kids, you've got one foot here, and you're not fully sold out for Jesus Christ. Well, you got a ticket, but you haven't really paid the full price of the ticket because your neighbor did. So you're not really invested. Are you invested in the kingdom of God? That's what Jesus is trying to challenge us. There is no doubt that many of you have experienced division, especially in the last couple of years. Do you know that's happened over the... I've got a bunch of people that I've counseled since 2020 and the election and COVID and all that. And there's still people that haven't talked to family members because of that. Well, I don't talk to them anymore. Good Christian attitude. Well, we can't because we have political differences. The problem doesn't rely in division itself. It relies in how we respond to division in our own lives. Division starts within. I'm the divider, and I need a Savior to stop that and put my undivided attention onto Jesus Christ. Listen to this. Last verse, the father will be divided against the son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law. That, that's all the time. That's just a guaranteed. <laughs> daughter-in-law against mother-in-law, guaranteed. We just checked that off. Never works. Not true, but that's most of the time. I've told you guys this story. My daughter, um, Shelby, she was living with us during COVID. And in May... 
when it all went to a tinderbox in our country. My daughter sat with me, and I have all these political ideas, and I've got this stronghold of what I believe as a good Christian man. And my daughter, she's 15, going on 16, said this, why are Christians acting like this? I thought we were supposed to bring love and peace. And I said, honey, I have no idea. And she goes, are you like that? And I said, I sure hope not. And that was a critical moment in my relationship with her because the enemy wanted me to stick to my own opinions and my own attitudes and my own beliefs of what I'm bringing into the relationship. And I had to back way down. And today, me and my daughter are in the best relationship we've ever had because I backed off and didn't make sure that the enemy became between me and my daughter because that's what he wants to do. Here's what it says. Jesus is coming back, and inevitably when Jesus comes back, you know what's going to happen? There's going to be division. You're going to be sitting at the table, and some are going to go, and some are going to stay. That's just how it's going to happen unless we start communicating and are attractively sharing how Jesus works in our life. He has the ability to help all of us go at that table, but some are going to miss out. When Jesus comes back, there is going to be division, and it actually was one of the greatest reasons why Romans hated Christianity. Did you know that? Romans hated Christianity for, a couple, for one major reason, because it split up families. Let me give you a family that it split up. The sons of Zebedee, they were fishermen, and two of the boys put down the fishing tool and, and, and the nets, and they go and follow Jesus. That man's business is no longer functional unless he finds some people to, to work for him, but they're a family member. Now that business kind of goes down, and now the taxes and all the things that are levied by the Romans are now impacted, and the guy goes, hey, I can't pay my bills anymore because my kids are following Jesus. The Romans hated Christianity because they were losing tax dollars because the family was being split and the Christians were losing their way in life. Parent against child, child against parent, Shelby against dad. There's a guy named John Wesley, and I'm going to close with this. Nothing short of God can satisfy your soul. Nothing short of God can satisfy your soul. Do you know who John Wesley is? John Wesley's an incredible pastor. At, by the time he was 87 years old, he had preached 40,000 times. Let me do the math. Say he started at 17, uh, so 70 years. He preached 571 times a year. I could barely put in 40 times a year. He's preaching all the time. And he was the type of guy that would preach anywhere, anytime, anywhere, uh, jail, street corners. At one, there's a story that he preached on his father's grave. Not appropriate, but that's what he did. His preaching started a movement. His movement and his preaching style was called the Methodist. Do you know why they were called the Methodist? Because of his methods, the way that he taught. He was willing to share the gospel anytime, anywhere, wherever it was at. And you know what his method was? To build schools, to build orphanages, and build hospitals because Christians build schools, orphanages, and hospitals. Do you know all over the world there's a cross with a snake that represents Jesus Christ? 
Because we are the ones that put the hospitals together. We are the ones that put schools together. Because Christians shape culture, Christians don't follow the culture. Thank you. John Wesley says this, I look upon the world as my parish. Is the world your parish? Where's your parish? Parish means your congregation or your your feeding place. Where is your parish? I love this. Listen, I don't actually agree with Wesley on a lot of his theological things. I have different beliefs. I don't believe a lot of what Wesley is, but let me tell you the reason why I'm bringing him up. He has this dream about denominations. Wesley has this dream. It's very famous. And in this dream, he goes up to the gates of hell and he yells in there, Are there any Presbyterians in hell? And they hear, Yeah. Baptists? Yeah. Episcopalians? Yeah. Methodists? Yeah. He's like, wow. That's not good. And then he's ushered in his dream to the gates of heaven. And he yells, are there any Episcopalians in heaven? No. Are there any Methodists? No. Baptists? No. Presbyterians? No. Well, who's in there? Christians. So what does this all mean today? How do we wrap this up? How does God want to speak to you about the vision? When we get to heaven, it's all about one church. When we're on earth, it's all about one church. We don't have to agree together about everything. We were in Israel and we went with another church. They sang hymns, they were very traditional, they were very different than us, and we loved them. And by the end, we had the greatest time ever because they were like, you guys are the most loving church. I can't wait to come and visit your church because of how loving you were to them. And we had different beliefs, but we have one Jesus Christ that died for you and I. As I reflect about the Holy Land in Jerusalem, the Holy Land is awesome. But do you know this? Holiness doesn't mean peacefulness. It actually means chaos. If you wanna try and be holy as God is holy, you're gonna have to do some work. And I'm not talking about work to be saved. I'm talking about work to get your, your life right and get your feet out of two different spots in this world and get fully focused on Jesus Christ. So what do we do? I'm going to use some Wesley quotes to kind of help you. Here are some things you need to do in a divided world. Number one, create a daily peace within your life. Create a space of daily peace. Listen to what Wesley says. John Wesley says this. He says, the best thing of all is that God is with us, Emmanuel. And I've got to, every day I wake up, I've got to create a peaceful walk no matter what is going on in my life. And right now, I led a trip to Israel, 15 people have COVID. A few have the flu. For whatever reason, God has protected me and another guy and we're the only ones. But we walk through this because we have this peace plan with Jesus Christ, God is with us. The second thing is I need to be persistent in my own prayer life. Prayer is where action is. John Wesley says, prayer is where action is. At one point at four in the morning on, uh, on, on Wednesday or Thursday morning, our time, we were told at the gate, two people that were in Israel couldn't make it. They were gonna have to stay. They were scared. They didn't have phones. They're like, we don't wanna go. And Liz, it's like, we can't leave them. I'm like, really? 
<laughs> Thanks, Liz. But listen, we prayed. And they told us you were not getting on this flight. People were boarding. And we just prayed. And 10 minutes later, they said, get your tickets and get out of here. You're bugging us. And we got our tickets and they rushed and they held the gate and we made it and we're back in America because of that. Because prayer. <laughs> prayer is where action is. It does work, Don. And here's the thing. I was talking to another lady, and I don't know. Maybe you guys have someone that you know that doesn't know Jesus Christ. Here's what you need to do. I need other people to join me in our prayer life. We have a prayer team. We have a digital and we have physical. Start letting us pray for you. I promise you it works. God, here's what Wesley says. God does nothing but by prayer. The only way that we can communicate is lift that up. But he says everything with prayer. He does nothing but by prayer and everything with prayer. So let's get 50, 100, 500, 5,000 people praying for that one soul. And I promise you that soul will come to Jesus Christ when everybody's praying. Here's the last one. I need the passion. Church, you guys got to get passionate. I'm passionate. You guys feel that? I'm passionate. Good. What about you? You got to get passion for Jesus to drive you. And here's what it says. Catch yourself on fire and others will come watch you burn. Will you burn with Jesus Christ with me? Will you live that your soul and your life burn for Jesus Christ? Here's what the Apostle Paul says. I appeal to you, dear brothers and sisters, by the authority of Jesus Christ, not by me, not by a pastor, by the authority of Jesus Christ. How are we to live in this world where there's so much things against us? He says, live in harmony with your neighbor that believes different political things or sexuality. Live in harmony with each other. Let there be no division in this church. No division. Put aside your politics. Put aside your beliefs, your opinions, your attitudes. Hang them at the door. And we come to church to worship Jesus Christ. And then it says, rather be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. Listen, I don't believe most of what John Wesley talks about, but I love him. He's had a heart for Jesus. We have different theological standpoints, and that's why I used him today. We can be separate on theology, but we believe the same Jesus Christ saves us and transforms our hearts and souls for Jesus Christ. Jesus wants us to be undivided and focused on him. If you are divided right now, let the Spirit of God fix that and change your heart. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and we seek you and we ask that you move in a very powerful way. If somebody is conflicted or divided or in a, in a place of chaos within their own heart, Lord, I pray the Spirit of God move. If you're online right now and weeping, cry out to Jesus to fix your heart, to make it one with Christ. And if you're here or if you're online and you don't know Jesus, all you have to do is confess. Jesus is Lord. Confess with your mouth, believe in your heart that he is Lord and you can be saved. And all you got to say is this prayer. Father, forgive me. Come into my heart and soul and be my Lord and Savior. You died upon the cross for me. You rose three days later so I can be in eternity with you. Fix my undivided heart so my faith will be focused on you. We love you, Lord, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen, 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 amen. Let's worship Jesus Christ one more time.